0: The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. One of the biggest problems with having preconceived biases is that you're often not even aware of them. Like most of us, I suppose, I like to think of myself as a pretty tolerant guy. I don't judge people on the basis of their gender or sexual orientation or skin color and have little time for those who do. But that didn't stop me from having a pretty strongly skeptical view about ADHD right up until I read The ADHD Explosion, Myths, Medication, Money, and Today's Push for Performance that UC Berkeley psychologist Stephen Hinshaw co-authored with the health economist Richard Scheffler. Stephen is an expert on ADHD and has spent decades carefully studying the condition firsthand. He's also a particularly thoughtful, insightful, and empathetic fellow. The last sort of person, in short, you'd imagine would dismiss an established scientific condition just because it sounded sort of flaky, like I did, and the New York Times did, and perhaps you did too. I think for a lot of people exactly like myself, there is a a tremendous amount of confusion and and misunderstanding as to what we're even talking about right from the very beginning. So let's just start there.
1: Well, part of the confusion is the alphabet soup nature of this. It's ADHD. No, it's ADD. No, it would just be called hyperactivity or hyperkinesis. And back 50 years or so ago, it was called minimal brain dysfunction, MBD. Mm. So I think we have to go back to compulsory education. What did we start to do? The first state in America was Massachusetts in about 1830. We made kids go to school. Europe had started to do this a few years before. Now for the first time, all kids, not just the elite few, have to sit in uncomfortable chairs, have to pay attention, and do things that the human brain never evolved to do, which is learn to read. Mm. If you want to get a kid talking, you expose that kid to a little bit of language, and the genetic programs in the brain take over. Everybody talks. If you try to get many kids to read, it's an act of God. It's a lot of work, because our brains only had to read. When did cuneiform get formed? Five thousand five hundred years ago or so. This right, is a recent cultural phenomenon. And then, only very recently, you know, the last second before midnight in the evolutionary time clock, did we make everybody do this. So. We've known for some time now that across the human species, for a long period of 100,000 years plus, there are individual differences. Some humans are pretty focused and some are explorers and they're captured by stimuli, we call them distracted today. Some people are kind of calm and complacent, other people are sensation seekers. We now know that there are certain genetic variants that produce these individual differences. In any species, it's a good thing to have diversity. If the climate changes, if the context changes, you want to have people who can not all be the same because then some will survive in these changed times. We know, for example, that one of the genes that is related to both sensation-seeking and risk-taking in ADHD, it's a complicated thing called the DRD4 gene, the dopamine type 4 gene. This is a gene that produces in its various alleles or forms more or less of a receptor for dopamine, right, in key parts of the brain that give you a sense of reward, give you a sense of being focused. So what do we know? It's pretty interesting. Back 15,000 years ago, we could point to the globe here, in Asia, when the Bering Strait was not a strait but a landmass, The frequency, there's a certain allele of this gene called the seven-repeat allele. And people who have this form of the gene tend to be explorers, they tend to be sensation seekers. Today, they like to ride on roller coasters and jump from planes. So what happened back then? There was a subset of the Asian population that crossed what's now the Bering Strait and went into modern day Alaska, British Columbia, and so on down over the years into California, even Central America, all the way down to South
0: America. So had it not been for this gene, we wouldn't have had people spreading out across the globe, presumably.
1: There's a 3% frequency, genetic anthropologists can now tell us, of this 7-repeat allele in the Asian society 15,000 years ago. As you go into modern-day California, South America, the gene allele frequency rises to 30 to 35%. Cool. So, maybe ADHD isn't a disorder during those times, it's an exploratory gene. It's not a bad thing to have. But now, in the last 150 years... Right. It's hard to explore when you're stuck in a chair in You're school. stuck in a chair. Yeah. So, we could say, well, ADHD is just all cultural. These are perfectly good genes and now we make every big kid sit still and so we call it a disorder. On the other hand, there's some evidence that even back in the day, way before compulsory education, let's see our hunter-gatherer. So it's probably good for some people to be kind of calm and focused and other people to be vigilant and looking out, many sensations. But there's only one arrow. And if you're impulsive and miss, there's the kill, there's the food for your tribe for a long time. Probably very severe forms of inattention and impulse control problems were always problematic. But today, Even milder forms are problematic because of this culture of needing to pay attention and increasingly over the last couple of decades needing to achieve higher and higher. So all this is a long way of saying that we as a species have many differences. Some people are highly focused, some people are restless almost by nature and impulsive, That might be good to have that variation, but over the last couple hundred years, and even the last couple of decades, people with those extreme forms of the inattentive impulsive side, that doesn't succeed very well these days. So we're really concerned that ADHD may be rising right before our eyes, even in the last 10 years in frequency, well above anything that anybody would have predicted even a couple of decades ago because of academic pressures. But let's focus on ADHD and what it is. I gave some sort of genetic background. The symptoms today have to do with two main forms. Are you attentive versus inattentive? Are you highly organized versus disorganized? A. And B, are you controlled or impulsive? Are you pretty calm or are you restless and fidgety? So inattentive symptoms, and hyperactive and impulsive symptoms. Those tend to fall out into two pretty distinct clusters most of the time. Hmm. So, how do you know that this isn't just a three-year-old boy? All three-year-old boys have pretty rampant ADHD because that's the nature of three-year-old boys and a subset of girls too. But what if you're well above the norm? You're in the 99th percentile even for a three or four-year-old boy. Or now in grade school when these pressures are on to sit still, what if you're much less attentive and much more impulsive than all but a few kids in your whole school? These are the kids who tend to get diagnosed with ADHD. There's no blood test, there's no brain scan, there's lots of research these days on with structural and functional neuroimaging and there are group differences, there are different brain structures and different brain processes in people with severe ADHD versus not. But, neither for ADHD nor for bipolar disorder, depression, schizophrenia, autism, we don't have a brain signature yet that is highly diagnostic. The mean differences in research may on the other hand reveal false positives and false negatives one-on-one. Maybe in 30 to 50 years we'll have some forms of this condition where there's a brain signature. That's the holy grail now. We're not quite there. And remember, even if we get more precise diagnostically, even if we get more precise brain scans, the symptoms of this condition play out in school. And when you've got to drive and pay careful attention, or when you've got to be in a relationship and really look to the other's needs, there's always a cultural aspect to how you diagnose these symptoms, even though in extreme cases there may be some real biological undercurrents.
0: Right, and and, and you're very consistent throughout your book of talking about how you need to look at this as a combination That's of... Right. of biological structure, predisposition, or what have you, and cultural aspects that you can't just look at at one without the other. But I'd like to go to the biological aspect uh, and explore that in a little bit more detail. I was personally quite fascinated by what I read in your book about the biological structure, Mm -hmm. because as someone who comes at this from perhaps a more scientific persuasion. I am thinking, okay, I've heard this thing, I've heard ADHD, I hear all sorts of things that are bandied around in the press, and, right. uh, in the public consciousness. If if this is um, a developmental disorder or condition or yep. something, there has to be some kind of, a, 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 of explanation from a neurophysiological, biological perspective. Right. So one of the things that I became aware of is, is this idea, um, uh, just looking at this, the actual synapses, and the, uh, you mentioned dopamine before, and and this idea, if you're looking at the synapses and you're looking at neurotransmitters that are actually sending a signal from one of these synapses to the other, um, there is some evidence to suggest that, uh, well, first of all, I guess there there are these things, so this is all my bio 101 that I was learning mm-hmm. from your book, but <laughs> um, so my understanding is you've got these neurotransmitters that take the signal from one of these synapses to the other, and you have these things called transporter molecules, right. and these transporter molecules sometimes, for reasons that are completely opaque to me, eat up these, these neurotransmitters or somehow inhibit them or bring them back to the yes. original cell. Right. And so there is a suggestion that people who have ADHD, they, they are not getting, uh, th- these, these transporters are perhaps doing too good a job or they don't have enough of these neurotransmitters that are moving the signal from one place to the other, and right. thus they can't, Make those connections as readily as other people who don't have that, because other people have this surplus or 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 perhaps uh, ideal balance of right. these these neurotransmitters. Is that a, a, a is that a fair way to describe what's uh, what's going on?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of fascinating neurophysiological research, and so let's take one step back, and then we'll get to it. Okay. Is ADHD, well it's called attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, it used to be called ADD, attention deficit disorder. Is there really a deficit in attention? Well, cognitive psychologists will tell you there's several forms of attention. Right. There's sustained attention. If I drone on too long, you'll be asleep. And so maybe people with ADHD just fade out quicker. Right. But there's good research that if you're looking at material There's problems in the cognitive processing of people with ADHD from the first second onward. So it's not just sustained attention over time, maybe it's selective attention. Am I listening to your questions? Am I worried about my stomach growling tomorrow's lecture? But I have to focus on you. Or let me give you a whole bunch of numbers. Six, eight, four, one, nine, seven. Could you say those backwards? So the longer I go, <laughs> right, you've got to co- to pay attention because I thought it was a test. <laughs> it was a test. <laughs> this is attentional capacity or load. And the more material anybody has to regurgitate, the harder it is. People with ADHD may have particular problems with attentional capacity and load. We're not even positive that ADHD is primarily an attention deficit disorder because of these various forms of attention. Maybe it's an inhibitory deficit disorder. One of the problems kids with ADHD have is they go to birthday parties, it's really fun, and they blow out the candles, but it's not their birthday party. Oh my God, I remember blowing out the candles at my birthday. It was so cool, and there was smoke, and everybody cheered, and the stimulus was in front of me, There's the cake, and I forgot to remember that it's not my birthday. We couldn't turn that off. Somehow. Couldn't turn that off. So it's not so much a deficit of attention as inhibition. I've got to suppress that impulse to do something really cool in the service of longer term gains. Or maybe it's a disorder of intrinsic motivation and reward. What do most grade school kids have to do? Work for honor roll four months down the road, the most distant reward that an eight-year-old could ever have. Kids with ADHD are concerned about consequences in the next five seconds or five minutes, and there's pretty good evidence that it takes a long time for most humans to develop that sense of intrinsic reward. Mm. But if you've got ADHD, it takes you a lot longer, maybe related to dopamine neurotransmission, because dopamine is the neurotransmitter in certain regions of the brain that they give you that sense of well-being and anticipatory pleasure, and oh, I've really done a good job now. So let's get into that, if that's one of the theories. Yeah.
0: Let's get into that, but but sure. also I just wanted to add be, before you, that, that's also, it seems to me, linked to uh, some of the behavioral techniques as well. That's because right. if you're talking that's about right. the idea that somebody um, is looking for that satisfaction, goal-oriented behavior, a job mm-hmm. well done, focusing on a specific task and then getting that reward, um, you can you can look at that neurophysiologically in terms of what's going on sure. in the synapses, but you can also look at that as, let's isolate that and try to condition, uh, try to build upon that That's so right. as to condition people. So you can see the link right there in terms of behavior and, neurophysiolo- and neurophysiology. Presumably. Absolutely.
1: So if we're talking for we jump to treatment, we say, well, we've got to replace this deficit of dopamine, Right. give medications that do it. Or we can build in, Rome wasn't built in a day, small incremental steps reward those systematically, and then gradually taper the rewards in the way that most kids don't need that precise a procedure, kids with ADHD might. So behaviorally, you might be able to shape longer and longer delay without using a medication. So both in terms of causation and mechanisms and treatment, you can look to the brain, or you can look to medication, or you can look to social learning theory and behavior and reward. It's a fascinating condition because both ends always get thrown in together. Right. Yeah. I, I want to
0: ask a few more specific questions about neurophysiology that that, yeah. uh, that came up as I was reading your book. Um, so one was you, you, there was a, almost a throwaway comment. So I'm not, I'm obviously not in the field, nor have I done a wealth of reading in the field. So perhaps all these questions are very elementary and, mm-hmm. and, and would be answered elsewhere. But you you've made this throwaway comment that. During the great influenza epidemic of mm-hmm. 1917 to 1919, yeah. there was a correlation uh, of uh, those who survived with some of these aspects of these conditions. That's right. And I'm thinking, what's going on there? What had, right. the people must have about this done some research looked at what what was caused by by this influenza epidemic on right. the minds of the sufferers what what are the what is our current understanding or theories or speculations about all that
1: well back almost 100 years ago during that epidemic we didn't really have any brain scan right. we had There's about no data. 60 million <laughs> people worldwide dying right of this pandemic and then many survivors children adolescents and adults having symptoms of inattentiveness and lack of focus and impulse control problems, the very things we're discussing. Hmm. Post-mortem, one could do an autopsy and say, boy, there's parts of the brain that were kind of eroded from this virus. So here's a known brain virus, after the fact you realize in certain motor control areas of the brain it might have done some damage. Hmm. So if we see a kid who didn't have the flu Who's exhibiting these symptoms? We must, this is a good example of backwards logical reasoning. We must infer that they had some brain pathogen that caused it. Hmm. I think that's modus tollens, right? Yeah. I should know my logic, right? You affirming the consequent. So the official name in the thirties became the minimal brain damage syndrome. Kids and adults who would display these symptoms. Oh, I see. We didn't know, they didn't have the influenza virus, but they're having symptoms. There must be some unknown pathogen in there that caused all this. This got softened in the next 10 years, in the 40s, to minimal brain dysfunction. So what was the problem here? Number one, by the 50s and 60s, NIMH, the National Institute of Mental Health, commissioned a big study. There was a book written about minimal brain dysfunction. How many symptoms were there? 99. Bedwetting, aggression, anxiety, attention problems far too broad. And it was called MBD, Minimal Brain Dysfunction, without any knowledge of what the dysfunction was or where it was in the brain. So when you're that broad, and you're that neurally specific without any reason to be, by the 70s people said, we can't keep this name anymore, it's doing a disservice to the field. It's too broad, it's too opaque. So by 1980, ADD, the new theory was, the primary deficit was of sustained attention. But Virginia Douglas, the Canadian psychologist who did much of this research back in the 60s and 70s, if you read her carefully, she said, yes, but it's also motivation and it's inhibitory control. This isn't one simple condition. The current research now, now that we've got brain scans, now that we can do structural and functional imaging, suggests that sometimes they're called the dual process or multi-process models. There's problems in intrinsic reward. There's problems in inhibition. There's problems in not only sustained attention, but other what we call executive functions. Many people with ADHD are perfectly normal intelligence or very high intelligence, but they can't make their way through a day. Planning, something goes wrong, I've got to readjust my strategy. Something goes right, I've got to give myself a pat on the back. It's the self-regulatory functions that may be the superordinate real cause of ADHD. And there's not just one neurotransmitter or one brain region. It's a complicated set of genetic risks, sometimes early prenatal or early childhood influences, but the ante is raised with intensive academic pressures where more and more kids are getting diagnosed. Right,
0: right. So i have got to get to the cultural part very <laughs> right. soon. Um, one more thing on the, on the neurophysiological, biological uh, aspect. So you also mentioned that there is a difference in not a huge difference, but an appreciable, measurable difference, as I understand it, in brain volume mm-hmm. of people, uh, there's a statistical overlap of That's people right. who are diagnosed with ADHD. My understanding also from doing another show with somebody else is that there is there is a similar correlation uh, in the autistic brain as well with brain, brain volume. So um, I'm thinking maybe I mean I, I realize we're a very 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 long way away yes. from uh, any sort of you know brain test scan and mm-hmm. I realize that's not the only factor and all right. of that but um, there are some suggestive ob- ob- potential objective checks yes. even at a very preliminary stage that we can point to and say well this is a little bit different this isn't just a question of Measuring inclination as best we can and and measuring attention span as best we can but we we do have some objective physiological distinctions between uh,
1: People who have been diagnosed with this condition and people who have not been this again is the holy grail with better and more precise timing Location in the brain you want to get both together Maybe we can get the neural signature with autism intriguingly. There's a subset of kids with serious autism whose brains are too big whose heads are too big oh, really? they have probably failed to prune I mean normally developing 1 right, 2 right, and 3 year old their brains are actually no. reducing by about 50% the number of neurons right. use it or lose it if they're not forming the neurons are not forming a viable synaptic connection the neurons die out this is a good thing making for a more efficient brain there's some theories of autism and some intriguing data that many kids, not all with autism, it's probably a subset, have brains that haven't pruned and their head circumference is too big. Right. With ADHD, with careful brain scanning measurements, there's an overall 8 to 10 percent smaller overall brain volume in individuals with ADHD than in typically developing individuals of the same age. Well, is this because of something prenatal or is this genetic or is it because they're not using their brains well over time you got to keep using things to keep the function going and the size going or is it specific brain regions really interesting research by philip shaw and his colleagues at the national institutes of health i'll take a minute to describe so this is part of really the world's first developmental neuroimaging study started 15 years ago or more out in bethesda nih not about ADHD necessarily, a large sample of kids who'd come in and sit still and lie on the brain scanner and they'd bring them back every couple of years. Well, that's great, because then you've got all these control groups and everything. That's right. And there's a subset of these kids with pretty carefully diagnosed ADHD. <laughs> so the long story short is normally developing kids, we just talked about pruning, the first few years of life, their brains have to get relatively smaller. I mean, they're growing, but the number of neurons get smaller. But we're gonna talk about the cortex. Cortex is Greek for bark. It's the outer coating of the brain. Just a few millimeters thick. That's where all the action is. Take a cubic millimeter of cortex. Millimeter cubed. There's hundreds of thousands of neurons and synapses compacted in there, it's unbelievable. Normally developing kids between six, seven, eight, and nine, the times that our culture invented this thing called school, right? their cortices are getting maximally thick initial pruning then thickening kids with ADHD are three years late and that was thought when these results were published in 2006 well this means that well you just wait a couple of years and these kids will catch up as the developmental neuroimaging longitudinal studies have been carried forward and then there's a pruning again in adolescence and a thickening up again later on kids with ADHD stayed delayed in their maturation. So there may be genetic programs, or there may be early experiential influences that are shaping the trajectory of normal brain development in these kids. So it's not just size of the whole brain, but this thin cortex where all the action of the brain really takes place in many ways. Why would kids with ADHD be three years delayed? This is one of the puzzles we need to solve to get to these objective diagnostic biological tools.
0: Let's get into treatment now. So you've, you've made a, a compelling case that there's something uh, interesting and, and, and there's certainly a lot rigorous going on neurophysiologically, mm-hmm. but there's an awful lot that's going on, as you say, in terms of our culture, yeah. uh, our, our conditioning, the interaction that we have. So once someone is diagnosed with, well, actually, let me back up a little bit. Sure. So I'm a, a, a concerned parent, I have a child who I, I think might have ADHD or maybe my teacher thinks he has uh, ADHD or what have you. So uh, what happens next in terms of the, diagnosis, uh, the, the diagnostic procedure and how does that move forward, or at least how should that move forward?
1: Well, how should versus how does yeah. is, a, is a big gap, right. which we talk about in the book. Right. How should this work has been outlined very carefully by some of our big professional groups. The AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the AACAP, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, which is a mouthful. These are professional groups that commission research, talk to the best clinicians, look at the data, and say, what is it gonna take to diagnose a kid with this condition? The long story short is, it's gonna take a long talk with the family about prenatal years, first year of life, second year of life, what we call a developmental history. A lot of the symptoms we're talking about inattention lack of focus spacing out impulsivity are linked to depression one of the cardinal symptoms of depression is poor concentration these symptoms are prevalent in kids who've been maltreated physically or sexually abused or neglected these can be products of seizure disorders you're going to have to do a lot of what the doctors call rule ins and rule outs there's no substitute for a thorough history this takes at least an hour Parents and teachers, both, independently, are going to have to fill out checklists, detailed ratings of the kid's behavior. Obviously, if the clinician can make a school visit, that's all the better, although that's often prohibitive. ADHD doesn't exist in the doctor's office waiting room, when the doctor's wearing a white coat. People with ADHD can get it together in a novel situation for 20, 30 minutes. ADHD occurs when you're doing homework, when you're on the soccer field, when the work gets harder the day-to-day vicissitudes and pressures of performance right so unless we get a history and unless we get really good data from the people who see the individual as he or she works and lives every day it's adhd is still a low-tech diagnosis it's a lot of information does your behavior if you're the one i'm concerned about stand out in the 95th or 98th percentile? compared to other males your age, because girls are less active than boys, so we gotta take gender into account, and age is a big factor. How does all this work in practice? Way too much of the time. A child gets diagnosed with ADHD in the United States after spending eight to 10 to 12 minutes in a pediatrician's office with no history, no rating scales, no checklists, no norms, no nothing, and the prescription pad is written. So we're really convinced that some of this astronomical rise across the last couple of decades in diagnosis is not necessarily because the environment's changing or genes are mutating that there's more real ADHD. ADHD's in the news. There's a lot of incentive to get this diagnosis, and when it's made in a quick and dirty fashion like this, this is the price we're going to pay. Okay.
0: So I definitely want to get back to that. Right. But let's go back to the more... Idealized case when we do have right. uh, proper medical treatment, proper diagnoses, yeah. um, uh, that that's in accordance with um, with professional opinions of of, of governing bodies right. who have thought long and hard about how best to move forwards with this. So we've had a we've had at least an hour rigorous examination. We've had. Uh, Cross referencing by independent reports from parents or independent reports from teachers right. and, and
1: other individuals and for an adult from an employer or supervisor right. or a spouse or partner you've got to get information outside the person the big That's right. the big picture right. and the big context
0: and then a diagnosis is made right. that this person uh, does have this condition um, What happens then or what should ha- again what should happen let's look right. more idealistically in terms of, uh, the treatment and and how should we proceed,
1: right? This is where there's real controversy and divided opinion Many European countries say what should happen then is you try the systematic rewards You get the parents engaged in parent management They're gonna break the skills down into small steps provide reward charts at home get the teachers consult- consulted with to do the same thing before you think of medication mm-hmm. the US now, if you're a preschooler, the behavioral treatments are preferred. But if you're a grade school kid and your ADHD is pretty severe, most of the professional associations will say medication is the place to start, and then as needed, you're going to add these behavioral treatments. So, I was involved some years ago in a big study called the MTA, the Multimodal Treatment Study of Children with ADHD. So it's not the Metropolitan Transit Authority. This is a different MTA, and. This study was done with about 600 carefully diagnosed kids, seven, eight, nine years of age. We did an eight to 10 hour assessment battery. We were sure they had ADHD. This was done on the west coast, east coast, and some kids in Montreal, everywhere in between, north and south. This was a random assignment clinical trial. We were going to leave nothing to chance. A quarter of the kids, about 150.
0: I'm going to have to uh, interrupt you uh, and and ask you to, because I have to assume that people know
1: nothing about any of this. Sure. So what is a random assignment clinical trial? So a random assignment clinical trial is not just saying, well, let's see how you got this treatment and you got that treatment. These kids got medicine. These kids got behavioral treatment. Well, there's a lot of reasons why people would self-select into certain treatments. A randomized trial treats it as an experiment. We diagnose a large group of kids and then the flip of a coin or a random number generator says, you get this treatment A and you get this treatment B. That's the only thing that differs between you. All the other motivational things, or how tall you are or how you sleep at night should come out on the wash as equal. So we get high internal validity. We can assert it's the treatment that made the difference in outcome, not all these other factors. Perfect. Thanks. Sorry so so in that. this right. MTA trial, we had four arms of the treat. About 150 kids get assigned to really carefully delivered medication. And we'll talk about this. The medications used for ADHD are stimulants, which enhance the effects of dopamine. The second group, we said, and we got informed consent, of course, from the families, we're going to ask you to keep your kid for the next 15 months off all medication. And you're gonna work hard in 35 parent management sessions and we're gonna send the psychologist into your classroom a couple times a month and meet with you and the teacher we're gonna create a summer program for your kid eight weeks nine hours a day we're actually gonna have a counselor from that camp serve as an aide in your child's classroom for three months of the second school year the most intensive behavioral psychosocial treatment we know the third condition was let's put those together that's the Cadillac right the fourth was well, that's our control group. Yeah, there, what, what we wanted to say was, please do not help your children. We want to see them suffer and we'll, we'll do our post-assessment <laughs> in 15 months. <laughs> Ethically, you can't do that. Yeah. So our control group was treatment as usual. Right. So by the time this study ran in the late 90s, medica- medication was getting more popular. Most of the kids in our control group got medication, the same treatment that kids in condition one, medication only. Condition three, combined got You'd think that's a terrible control group, but let me tell you what happened. Our main outcome measure was, and this is after a year and a quarter of treatment, very intensive, the symptoms of ADHD as rated by parents and teachers, the medicine as we gave it, or the medicine as we gave it in combination with these intensive behavioral treatment procedures, quickly and reliably reduced those symptoms in the vast majority of cases close to the normal range. The behavioral treatment was slower and not as effective. The community treatment that involved medication, but not the way we gave it, not with finding the right dose, spending a half hour with the doctor every month. This is the usual pediatric standard of see a doctor every six months for nine minutes. Right. Was the worst. Didn't do very well. So, medication is not medication, it's not medication, it's how you diagnose, it's how you treat, it's how you monitor. But it was surprising, and in some ways disappointing, all that reward-based behavioral treatment didn't add appreciably at all to the symptoms. But then we published another paper two years later, where we said, what might be more important than the symptoms is, what about reading and writing? Because these things don't happen instantaneously. That's right, what about friendships and social skills at school. What about the parents' discipline styles? A lot of parents of kids with ADHD have some of the symptoms themselves, because genetic tendencies, and they're frustrated. Teaching the parents to be much more calm and responsive. So, when our outcome measure wasn't just symptoms, but it was aggression and depression, as well as academics and social skills and family discipline style, only the combination treatment really put a significant dent in that medication gets the kid's brain in better shape if you will to be amenable to all of the learning that the teachers and families are doing to try to get the kids intrinsic reward in place
0: which has a longer term
1: effect which is what we're hoping is that it has a longer term effect the problem with the long-term data from our study is we couldn't afford to treat these families for two or five years we stopped all the treatment and have been following them up over time through adolescence and even young adulthood, once the treatments stop, either medication or this intensive combination treatment, the gains tend to erode. Mm. This wasn't a vaccine, Mm. right? ADHD may be a longer term condition than many people have thought. In fact, we used to think 30 years ago, ADD, hyperactivity, vanished when you hit puberty because the kids weren't fidgeting and squirming anymore. But the underlying attention problems and impulse control problems often stay. And would we be surprised for the diabetes clinical trial if we said, well, we gave insulin very carefully for a year and a quarter. And no, we stopped. And we stopped, and the <laughs> symptoms came back. We'd say, well, duh, <laughs> ADHD may be more like diabetes than an infectious illness. It's gonna take some sustaining of treatment over time.
0: I wanna to get to the, to the adults in a moment that you mentioned on several occasions. But it just seems there are two points that are really worth highlighting uh, that I certainly hadn't hadn't thought of. Um, One is that the behavioral conditioning, learning techniques, Mm -hmm. uh, working with the child in new ways, longer-term issues, uh, uh, leads to, I would imagine, not only better structure, some degree of uh, of intellectual coordination, goal planning, yep. receiving all the rest of that for the child, but it also it drastically increases empathy. Uh, um, I would say uh, it would. Imma- I would imagine that it would. It would improve parenting skills. It's a hard thing to objectively say, but yep. certainly, if you're spending a great deal of time and effort with your child in all sorts of different ways, right. um, that would tend to make you much more. Uh, much more adept at being able to work with your child, and that's just you're spending much more time with your child. So, right. so there's this, this notion that, uh, that the dynamics, the mm-hmm. relationship between the parent and the child will improve just for the combined goal sharing and efforts that are that's going right. into that activity, I would think. Yeah. So that's a huge additional um,
1: benefit from, from that activity. And it's not just more time with the child, but it's more time and less yelling. Right <laughs> and less empty threats. You're going to be grounded for the next five years if you don't... St- yeah. Parents of kids with ADHD get into these empty threats because they're desperate. These are the kids back when they were young who gave up napping before one year. These are the kids pulling down curtains in the house at five in the morning when they're four right. and have been already tossed out of two preschools. Right. Parents are desperate. It must be sure. my fault because the clinicians often say, well, I don't need to see the kid. I need to see you. It must be your marriage that's falling apart. or Well, the marriage might be falling apart because of dealing with a kid like this. We know that from every twin study and adoption study done, the genetic undercurrent of ADHD is higher than it is for schizophrenia or depression. About 80% of the reasons why some people are really focused, most people are in the middle and some are really ADHD-like, These are 80% related to genes. Hmm. So we don't want to blame parents, except for the genes they transmitted to their kids, for having caused a condition. But some people stop there and say, well, gee, all you can do is give medicine, or maybe we could do gene replacement therapy, the way we can do with some neurological illnesses now. We obviously can't do that. What's the issue? Even though genes and early birth trauma or low birth weight, other biological factors may have been initial causes, how the family deals with the kid how the family fights fire with fire versus taking a calmer more rational more di- strict discipline approach with realistic limits makes all the difference for outcome yeah. another make, reason why you can't separate biology from the environment you make this distinction between blame and responsibility that's right just because
0: uh, you it's not your fault doesn't mean that you don't have some significant responsibility to, to be involved exactly. in a constructive way. A- do as mean? a
1: family or when you're older, adolescent or adult, getting treatment for yourself, exactly.
0: Okay. The other point that you, uh, that you make repeatedly that I, I certainly hadn't thought of, one of the many, but the, the, mm-hmm. the, the salient one which certainly comes to my mind, um, is the distinction between different ways of applying medication yeah. So naively you think, well, you give the guy medication. Mm-hmm. okay? You either give medication or you don't give medication. The controversy or lack of controversy surrounds the effectiveness of medication, whether it's the right thing to do, the wrong thing to do, and so forth. But at least in my mind, that's where it stops. Okay. There's a pill, you either give it or you don't. But it's much, much more complicated than that, as, mm-hmm. as you had alluded to. Um, there's a controlled way of giving the medication. There's supervision of the medication. There, right. there, there are questions of doses. It's, it's a tremendously complicated it's issue.
1: Much more complicated than most people give it credit for. So you could take two Tom Sawyer boys with ADHD, right, the sort of stereotype. They both weigh 64 pounds and they both have the same symptoms. One boy requires one form of a stimulant at a very low dose. Another requires a different form at five times the dose before you get the same effect. This is called pharmacogenomics. Maybe there are certain genetic differences across kids that predict not only their symptoms, but how they respond to medications. This is another holy grail we're going after. What it means right now is the doctor has to work in collaboration with the family in a controlled trial and error fashion. The first dose you give may be the wrong pill, may be the wrong dose. We've had kids come to the summer programs I run, which I've done for a long time, saying, this medicine's terrible for my kid. And at some of these summer programs, we do systematic trials. A week at dose A, a week at dose B, a week on placebo. Some kids don't make it a week on placebo, you know in 10 minutes, others last the whole time. And the parents say, we'd never thought, and our doctor never suggested, trying a much lower or much higher dose or changing from medication form A to form B makes all the difference in the world. We also, in this big MTA study I alluded to, in the medication condition not only took the first 30 days to get the right dose, changing doses every day, right. having the families look at the data, it's very complicated, but every month thereafter, 30-minute visit, during the last 10 minutes, the doctor said, hey, mom and dad, see you later. And the doctor sat down with the kid one-on-one. Now, these are eight, nine, 10-year-old kids at this time. How does it feel? Do you get teased for taking the medication? What's your motivation? It's not just handing a pill. What happens with high blood pressure? What happens with cholesterol medications? What happens especially with ADHD medications or medications for bipolar disorder? They're often not taken because people forget or they're motivated to, I feel better about myself if I'm not taking a pill. Yeah. The relationship between the medication doctor and the patient is just as important as the relationship between the psychotherapist and the patient.
0: Right, And to do this well takes Money as well as time. And we'll right. get we'll get to that in a in, in, in a bit. But before we do, I wanted to ask a question about this condition uh, manifesting itself in in adults and some yes. of the differences. Because I think most people think ADHD that's a, a kid who's out of control. Yeah probably a boy, Mm -hmm. um, running all over the place, okay, give the kids some Ritalin, or don't give the kids some Ritalin, or whatever it is, and then eventually they'll grow out of it. That's right. There's this this, this naive
1: notion uh, about that. Well, that's the notion that the pediatrics textbooks had 30, 35 years ago. Hyperkinesis is a benign condition because it vanishes with puberty. Mm. What was the problem with that assertion? No long-term longitudinal follow-up studies. Right. We now know that for both boys and girls, and here at Berkeley, we've got the largest sample of girls with ADHD in the world that we've been following systematically now 15 years. Many, over time, especially those who started out as the really rambunctious, fidgety, squirmy, hyper ones, the kids at 18 who literally jumped on the desks at our summer camps could now sit. The hyperactivity's gone, but you ask, their minds are racing can't focus. You give tests, sustained attention, impulsivity still there. So 80% of kids well diagnosed in childhood continue to have full ADHD in adolescence and somewhere over 50% of these kids still have it as adults. Meaning what? Well some adults may quote grow out of it if they find the right job and get skills. CEOs of big firms self-diagnosed with ADHD. Helps me be creative and think outside the box. Now, some of those CEOs have seven personal assistants, right? That helps too. That does help a lot. And some, even of the self-professed ones, have had disasters on the job because they made bad decisions. ADHD, the most florid symptoms tend to go away or go underground. Motor restlessness transmogrifies into cognitive restlessness. So now there's a growth industry, the biggest rise in diagnosis and medication is for adults, not kids. Mm. Kids have almost kind of peaked in the United States. It's hard to diagnose ADHD in adults well because, number one, you need to get some evidence that this person didn't wake up one day at age 34 with ADHD. If that's the case, what do you think as a clinician? What drugs have you been taking and Mm. where did you fall and injure your head? These symptoms don't come out of the blue. But you're gonna have to go back in time of course the diagnosis may not have been made in childhood people didn't know about it they thought it was a hoax or what have you parents are still alive getting school records and then second what about on the job performance what about relationships and you've got to bring other people just the way you bring teachers into the assessment when it's a kid when it's an adult many adults with ADHD say well I've got a terrible boss and yeah I got treated badly but there's not a lot of recognition as to their role in the symptoms Right. So, so they've, they've had ten
0: terrible bosses in a row. That's, right. <laughs> that, yeah,
1: that's right. That's right. There's a pattern there, yeah. right? Right. Uh,
0: a little bit about gender before we before Please. we move on. So, um, uh, there, there, my understanding is that uh, boys are far more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD, um, but there is growing evidence that uh, supports the fact that there are. Many, many girls you had alluded to it before who have mm-hmm. ADHd many uh, but but the, the symptoms may be manifested in somewhat different ways right. um, and in your book, you also point out that um, i don't know if this is statistically true, but certainly there are many very tragic examples of girls yes. who haven't been uh, diagnosed uh, with ADHD properly or treated properly. It, it seems as if, if I'm reading what you uh, what you were writing correctly, that the the negative effects tend to be very very dramatic for for. Uh, for those g- girls who haven't been properly diagnosed with ADHD, probably
1: more statistically significantly yeah. than, the, than for boys. Is
0: that, is that a fair assessment?
1: Yeah, uh, l- let's talk about each point, because these are really important points. So is ADHD really more prevalent in boys than girls, or do we just not recognize it in girls? No, it's really more prevalent in boys, but so is autism. Hmm. So is aggressive conduct disorder. So is Tourette's disorder. The first 10 years of life, neurodevelopmentally, are the risk period for boys sorry guys, the Y chromosome isn't very big, there's only a few genes on it, it's not gonna mask or cover for some flaw in the X chromosome, and and this is well known. The second 10 years of life are the risk period for girls. Anxiety, depression, eating problems, cutting, suicidal behavior, that's another story. People thought when I was in grad school that ADHD didn't really exist, or ADD back then didn't exist in girls, or it was really anomalous. Now we know that it's about three to one. Autism is about four or five to one so maleness is a predictor of these neurodevelopmental problems for a whole host of reasons. We set about my lab here at Berkeley over 15 years ago to systematically study ADHD in girls because we thought we're getting referrals and we're getting calls there's never quite enough to run a program. Let's run a program only for girls. We got NIMH, And the grant reviewers, the peer reviewers to agree, best scored grant I've ever got. And so we got a big sample, 140 girls with carefully diagnosed ADHD, again, an 8 to 10 hour battery, participated in one of three summer camps. And alongside them was an almost equally sized group of typically developing girls from the same neighborhood, our control group built in. What have we learned when we published our first papers in 2002, 14, or 12 years ago, on this condition in girls. That day we doubled the world's literature, which is really kind of sad, it's not a huge sample. Very little systematically had been done before. Mm. Second, we found that whether it was their attention, their academics, their social skills, how many friends they had, how many services they needed in school, how they did cognitively on a bunch of neuropsychological tests, They were systematically worse than the control group, just like boys. Real effect. Real effect. We got a big percentage of them to come back five years later. Some had scattered to the wind. It's a California sample. We found them. They found us. Ten years follow-up happened then, so five years after that. Ninety-five percent retention rate we got back. Our staff were relentless. We never give up. How
0: did you get a 95 percent retention
1: rate? We never (laughs) give up. And I'll tell you what, Facebook is a good way to track a longitudinal sample. Yeah. You can privately friend a girl and not be publicly on her wall and stay in touch even if she's had a falling out with her family. And I didn't so- expect that with this conversation. I didn't expect it would turn into an advertisement for Facebook. That's but right. there you go. <laughs> Social media <laughs> helps longitudinal research. Okay. So why, why am I saying this? If we had 50% of these young women back, they were girls, now they're about in their early 20s, well, do you say, the 50% are the ones who are doing best, the ones who cared enough to come back. With 95%, we're pretty sure this is reliable. These girls with ADHD, now young women, were, they barely graduated from high school at the summaries as their control group because their parents said, we carried her on our back. But they're the ones who are not going to four-year schools or many community colleges, and their job vocational success is far lower. Hmm. They continue to have the planning, sustained attention, executive function deficits. In some cases, actually getting worse over time, Mm -hmm. whereas the comparison group would get better. Most shockingly, we added measures at this 10-year follow-up, which we're doing now in our current 15-year follow-up into the mid-20s, of things that aren't just symptoms of ADHD, but are symptoms of Have you thought your life wasn't worth living? How strongly have you considered suicide? Have you ever made a serious suicide attempt? And separately, what about cutting, burning, self-mutilation, non-suicidal, self-injurious behavior? The results were very alarming. Of the girls with ADHD 10 years earlier who started off with lots of impulsivity as well as inattention, 23% percent of them had made a serious suicide attempt by the age of 20 Twenty-three percent, and 51 percent were actively severely cutting mutilating burning themselves 51 51 percent now in our control group it was 19 percent that's the national average there's a crisis of self mutilation and cutting among teenage girls these days but two and a half fold higher in the girls with ADHD so unlike boys many of whom with ADHD go on to delinquent careers and abuse substances, at least for a period of time. The girls with ADHD are taking it out against themselves. They feel socially isolated. They're not doing well in school. I mean, you could say for a boy, well, he's just all boy. A girl with ADHD is very atypical compared to other girls. Mm -hmm. These girls are internalizing it. And so one of our big interests in our 15-year follow-up is to see if through treatment or through maturation if some of these self-destructive tendencies are getting under control.
0: Okay. Well, congratulations for doubling the, the number of studies. World I mean. literature, right. <laughs> um, before we go to the next topic, I'm gonna have to ask you one more time to, to define something that we've been throwing around. Uh, again, because I'm always trying to be conscious of somebody who, who may not have a scientific background mm-hmm. at all, and that's, you've mentioned longitudinal studies yes. several times, and, and maybe you can just give me a quick definition of, of that.
1: So, some developmental research says, well, let's look at five-year-olds, and we'll look at, uh, do they learn best under condition A or B, and but what we really want to know is how five-year-olds turn into seven-year-olds and nine-year-olds and 11-year-olds. One way we could do this, a simpler way, is to take a group of 15 year olds and we call follow back. Well, let's go into the school records or let's get their parents to talk about when they were like when they were babies and they were five and 10. The problem with follow back studies is, it's called recall retrospective bias. Did you really remember how old was your kid when she walked and talked and right? So a true prospective longitudinal study takes a long time to do. You get a group of young kids, and you follow them year by year, or every few years over time, to see how they develop. It takes you 15 years to do a 15-year longitudinal study, and you're sort of doomed with the measures you thought were the right measures back there at the beginning. Things progress. If we could have done brain scanning on all the girls back in the 90s, it would have been great. And those techniques didn't exist very well, or not very inexpensively at that point. But what a longitudinal study can do, especially if you've got a group with a clinical condition like ADHD and a group typically developing our control group, is look at the patterns and trajectories over time. What was it about their earliest years that predicted the group who does really well and the group who doesn't? Can we isolate? And in fact, we're publishing studies on this right now. Why exactly? is ADHD such a risk for self-harm suicide attempts and self-injurious behavior by looking in at girlhood we know that the impulsivity was a big factor and in adolescence at our midway point the girls who were most rejected by their peers usually other girls and those girls who had combinations of delinquent behaviors and depressed behaviors those are the ones who ended up in the self-destructive pathways so A longitudinal study is trying to really build a map, a life course map. Perfect.
0: Um, Let me go back to the the guy on the street and skepticism that he might have or she might have Mm -hmm. about the existence of this thing. Oh, well, it's just falling standards these days. You know, everybody's making excuses. Nobody Mm -hmm. takes responsibility. Everybody's got a disability. Everybody's got something. Everybody's got this or that or the other thing. Everybody should be on medication. Mm-hmm. It's an over-medicated society. It's a, it's a society filled with complainers. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting is that, as you point out time and time again, um, this sentiment, which is in the public consciousness, is reinforced by not only wide pockets of the media, but often the mainstream media. You single out the New York Times uh, That's right. quite frequently for, yes. uh, for examples of, of publishing things that not only seem to have an axe to grind, seem to have an agenda, but right. often go very strongly against prevailing scientific That's opinion exactly and scientific,
1: right. scientific dogma. So why, why is
0: this? I mean, wh- why do you think that is?
1: So in the Times, so across 2012 and thirteen, some pretty good news stories about ADHD, but the opinion pieces, the Sunday Review, the op-eds, almost uniformly ridiculing, debasing. It's not a real condition. Medications are poisons. We just don't tolerate boyhood, etc. Cetera, it's et cetera. just bad parenting. Stuff that any review of the scientific literature would tell you is not the case. We have to look to a concept called stigma. So, this is a big topic in social psychology. Racial prejudice has had the most ink on this. But what if you confess that you've got a mental illness, I even hear the name, you're not stable, you're violent, you can't control yourself, you, you must have weak will, or there's a, I may not express it because I sort of know better, you know, my, minding my manners, but inside I feel you're not worthy, you may not even be fully human. Mm-hmm. So the stigma of mental illness is a topic I'm quite interested in, wrote a book on this a few years ago right. called The Mark of Shame. And it turns out that If you had to pick the three things or three attributes in today's society that people even consciously admit, much less what's really going on inside, will say, I don't want to be around those people. I stigmatize them, people with mental illness, people who abuse drugs, and people who are homeless. Those are the bottom three. Mm. And we tend to put those together. And sometimes they do actually go together. You must not have it together your parents must have been terrible parents, you're getting handouts, SSI payments, you're violent. We have a big stereotype in the media that mental illness is always linked to violence. Mm. There's a few forms of mental illness that are, but the absolute fact is that people with severe mental illness are far more likely to be victimized by violence Mm. than to perpetrate it themselves. Now we come to, and this often occurs for something like schizophrenia, you're psychotic, you're delusional, Nobody wants to be around somebody like that. Bipolar disorder, you're wacky, you're uh, just think of the words, loony, loony tunes, children's cartoons are highly stigmatizing, right? But what about ADHD? These are kids who look pretty normal a lot of the time. They act normal at recess, but then in reading they're not doing so well. So they're consistently inconsistent. It turns out that the stigma of milder, if you will, forms of mental disorder, or ones that really fluctuate in their consistency. stigma is really high. There's more stigma against high-functioning autism, what used to be called Asperger's, Mm. very smart kids who act really weird, than there is against the more prevalent, intellectually impaired kids with autism. You feel bad and sorry for them, but the other ones you think they're just weird. They're not trying. They're not trying, or with ADHD. You got it together in period two, right? What happened in period four? It must just be bad effort or lousy parenting. So right. stigma is really high, right?
0: And then they get it from the other side, as you said. If if somebody comes along and gives them ironclad proof of some bio neurophysiological, that's right. Then, then all of a sudden they're they're some deformed, they're less than human, they're all the rest of that. So that you can't win in a
1: way. Well, we thought we had the answer to stigma. So back in the fifties and sixties, what was the predominant mode of psychological and psychiatric thinking, psychoanalytic, psychodynamic, poor early parenting leads to unconscious conflicts and cure psychoanalysis, et cetera, et cetera. We shifted in the 70s, 80s, 90s to behavior genetics, biological models. Schizophrenia has a substantial genetic liability. As we just said a minute ago, ADHD has an even higher genetic liability than that. Let's sell that to the public. Schizophrenia is a brain disease. ADHD is a dopamine disorder or whatever we want to call it. The social psychologist will tell us that if you're behaving deviantly but I'm the public now and I think oh it's because you couldn't help it it's a biological cause I'm gonna forgive you if I thought you just had weak personal character I'll really blame you the research is really interesting on this just published a few months ago the first sort of review of the world's literature on this topic. Take hypotheticals, take experimental design studies, or just take people's general opinions. There's a group out there who have mental illness and if I sort of program the research subjects to think it's because of biochemistry or because of genetic liability. Almost uniformly the public will say, well, gee, I don't really blame that person. Poor person. So that's probably a good thing. Mm. But what also happens with the biogenetic attribution? I don't think you're ever going to get better and I don't want to be around you. It's as though, so what happened in the 40s? Never put cancer in an obituary. This was shameful. You'd put died of natural causes or died of an unknown illness Mm. because we didn't understand cancer. Now we know that cancer is highly genetic in many cases and But it's cancer of, it's a disease of your lungs or your liver or your pancreas. There's something about the biological ascription to mental illness where your whole behavior, your whole being is flawed genes. I think what happens is we tend to think of the person as less than human. And once we dehumanize, harsh consequences. Absolutely, yes. Don't wanna be around, it's called social distance. Social distance is increased paradoxically when we make a biogenetic ascription to mental illness.
0: Let me let me turn to the public policy aspect, some mm-hmm. of the public policy aspects of, of, of your recent book. Um, and these are the ones that, uh, at least in the reviews that I read, got the vast majority of the attention. That's right. Um, of uh, accounting for disparities in diagnosis and medication mm-hmm. of ADHD in different geographical regions. Yeah. Um, as a result of public policy decisions that were tied to educational incentives, structural incentives to, for schools to do better, right. testing, uh, this, this sort of thing. So um, rather than me trying to summarize what, what you know very well, perhaps mm-hmm. you can talk a little bit about that.
1: So let's start and go back to what we talked about earlier in our discussion. The cause of ADHD is compulsory education. Half tongue in cheek, I mean, there's genes, there's biological influences, but until we made kids go to school, it didn't really stand, these symptoms didn't stand out in sharp relief the way they do now. So now we're in the 20th, going on 21st century. If you haven't noticed, it's hard to get a kid into college. If you haven't noticed, America's test scores are middle of the pack or lower compared to Beijing and Shanghai and to other countries, Finland, and so educational academic pressures are mounting. So the first premise in the book is we're seeing a general increase in ADHD the more that academic performance and later vocational performance count. But then, as you just alluded to, number two, ADHD rates of diagnosis have gone up 40% in the last nine years in America. But it's not uniform. Our poster children states in the book are North Carolina, a very high rate of diagnosis there, versus California, a very low rate. What could explain that? In fact, a kid between four and 17 in North Carolina is two to two and a half times more likely to get diagnosed with ADHD than a kid in California or Nevada. Well, it's gotta be demographics, right? More Hispanics in California. Hispanics have traditionally been diagnosed at a lower rate. We took that into account, it didn't explain more than a tiny fraction of the difference. Well, as practitioners, maybe there's more pediatricians per county in North Carolina or child psychiatrists. We took that into account, didn't explain any of the difference. Maybe it's culture. The South is culture of honor. The West is rugged individualism. Well, that's a stereotype. I even laugh as I say it. Probably the research triangle in North Carolina is more similar to the Silicon Valley in Northern California than rural North Carolina is to rural California. It's hard to come up with a statewide cultural stereotype. There's a lot of rugged individualism in the the triangle. That's right. (laughs) So... Richard Scheffler, my co-author of the book, and I systematically, and with his health economics background, systematically said, maybe school policy plays a role here. So, a tiny bit of background. 1983, if I have my year right, the Bell Commission Report was published in America. School tests, achievement tests, we're not doing well. There's a crisis in American education. Within the next 10 to 15 years, a number of states, one by one, past laws that we call somewhat awkwardly but we think accurately consequential accountability laws meaning what well it's not input based it's not well we just got to get that student teacher ratio better or we got to teach more science it's add money into the system right yeah it's saying you got to get those test scores up yeah we're going to incentivize test scores period and there's consequences if you haven't you know met that accountability standard your school's name might be published in the daily paper, or you might lose fundings, or you right. might, your whole district might go into receivership.
0: And there are consequences if you do do
1: it as well. And I mean, right. there are very positive consequences. So that's, that's the whole point. So, by the year 2000, 30 states, one by one, sort of a domino effect, had passed these consequential accountability laws. Where were those states by and They're in the South, which had, even by then, the highest rates of diagnosis. Culture of honor. Culture of art. <laughs> now, this is correlation. This is a weak inference, we'd call it. Well, maybe there's a million other factors mm-hmm. in the South that produced both high rates of ADHD diagnosis and these laws. But then what happened in 2001 and 2? George W. Bush passed No Child Left Behind, which, starting in the 2002-03 school year, became the law of the land. The other 20 states now, for the first time, had boom, consequential accountability because this was federal policy. Right. So here's where, you know, we were systematic but you get a little bit lucky too. In 2003, just as this is implemented, the first national survey of children's health includes ADHD questions to the 100,000 families that are surveyed. They repeated again in 2007 and again in 2011 and 12. So these are the random families around the country who are reporting 40% increase in overall rates of ADHD diagnosis for kids between 2003 and 2011. But here's what we call a natural experiment. 30 states have had these laws in the books for some time. Now 20 states, boom, 2002, three have these laws. What's gonna happen in the next four years in those states? If the policy had an impact, it's those recent 20 states that should jump up. Right. And we further hypothesized that wouldn't be every kid in those states, it would be the poorest kids. Right. Because No Child Left Behind targeted Title I poor schools. Kids, schools with a lot of poor kids in them. Poor kids were starting to get diagnosed with ADHD because of policies before, in the early 90s. Medicaid was now funding this. Federal Special Education Act, IDEA, now recognized ADHD as a form of disability that could get you services. So what did we find? A little complicated, but I think I can make it transparent. Between 2003 and 2007, for the 20 states that suddenly had these accountability policies, and for the poorest kids in those states, the kids within 200% of the federal poverty level, their rate of diagnosis of ADHD went up 59% in four years. The middle and upper class kids in those same states, every other kid in the state, went up about 7%. And the private school kids in those states showed no difference between rich and poor. The 30 states that had already passed these laws before, so that had taken effect, every kid in those states went up the usual average of 20% across the country. When you incentivize scores to the be-all and end-all, right? This is what the policy people call an unintended effect. Nobody passed No Child Left Behind. They wanted to lift test scores. Nobody said it's going to make ADHD diagnoses go up for kids within 200% of the federal poverty level, but it did. So why? Well, number one, if you get a kid diagnosed and treated, maybe that'll boost their achievement. We know, Scheffler, my co-author for the book, Scheffler et al., I'm an author, 2009, a study in pediatrics, from another study of young kids, followed six years, when you give medication and the kid stays on a year, reading and math scores tend to go up. It doesn't just make you less fidgety, it helps you achieve, right. not permanently, and you've got to teach the kid, too. So there may be incentive for the districts to say, oh, my God, we've got to get our test scores up. Parents, some subtle or not-so-subtle pressures to get the pediatrician, and that 10-minute visit can make a quick diagnosis. Now, there's a more nefarious interpretation, too. In some districts, in some states, if you diagnose a child with ADHD back then, and they were special education, all of a sudden they get the asterisk and their scores are pulled out of the yeah. district score. How do you get the mean level, the average level of a statistic to <laughs> go You take out the lowest scoring people in the distribution. Right. So some districts were gaming the system. Now, two things. Number one, that ended up becoming illegal under No Child Left Behind. You couldn't game the system in that way. But also in 2008, the election, 2009 Obama became president, and he systematically derailed No Child Left Behind and had the race to the top and other policies. So between 2007 and 2011 and 12, the next wave of this national survey, that differential in the consequential accountability states between rich and poor vanished. Policy matters. I'm a Common Core fan. I think America needs better academic procedures and standards and explainable way of teaching complicated concepts in math and history to kids. I'm not so sure that test scores should be the only way to do that educationally. And our own research shows us that the unintended consequences for diagnosis of ADHD can be alarming. Now some people would say, so what? More kids get diagnosed, medicated, helps everybody. In fact, why don't more kids get, why don't more adults get medicated? Mm. We're not doing very well achievement wise in our society. So let's go to college. What do somewhere between 8 and 30 percent, if you believe the surveys, which I do, of college students now do? They take ADHD medications even though they don't have ADHD. Study pills, smart pills. Oh my God, my midterm is Friday and I've got two term papers. So, hey, I've got a friend down the hall, roommate, he's got Adderall or Concerta or Ritalin or Dexedrine, and I'll pop it. Right. Doesn't seem to make me feel bad. In fact, feel a little alert stayed up all night i gave a talk a few months ago fall of 2013 at some wealthy public high schools in Marin County just north of San Francisco the school newspaper had done a survey 12% of all ninth graders and 40% of all 12th graders were taking stimulants for sat studying in high school 40%, 40%. of all 40% high so this isn't just in college anymore so the question is is this Horrible, or is this fine? I mean, think of fluoride. We put it in the water supply. Prevents tooth decay, right? Maybe we should put stimulants in the water supply. Get a little boost in dopamine level. You're going to stay up later, study harder. You're you're trying to provoke me here. You're looking for because I'm I'm, I'm right on the the edge of my seat. I'm ready to go. (laughs) What do we know? Number one, it used to be thought that ADHD was sort of a magical paradoxical disorder. Because these are kids, when they took a stimulant, they would calm down, but everybody else would get sped up. Mm. Well, studies were done 30 years ago. You give perfectly normally developing kids stimulants, and what happens? They fidget less and they pay better attention. So maybe everybody's dopamine system is enhanced a little bit with the stimulant. But what about? College students who don't have ADHD, we know that the stimulants will help them focus and stay alert and stay up all night. Do they help learning? So, we finally have some results on this from an important study published in 2013 by Illy, Ava, Boland, and Farrup at the University of Pennsylvania. They got 46 college students, not a hand of ADHD, who agreed to participate in a seven week study randomly assigning each week alternating stimulant or placebo. Yeah. And they gave, now they didn't give every test every week, but they alternated 13 tests, not just to focus and being alert, but working memory, verbal fluency. You going to really learn better. How many of those 13 measures did the college students without ADHD improve upon on the stimulant weeks compared to the placebo week? Zero. There was a 14th measure, which was a simple one-item scale each week. How well did you do on your tests? And the college student said, I aced it this week when they <laughs> took their stimulants. So the implication is the stimulants are boosting false self-confidence. You think you're doing better because you're alert, and that boring material seemed interesting. And So one of my colleagues, Jim Swanson, a psychologist at Irvine, has written on this, and it's pretty interesting. So forget ADHD, you have it or you don't. Let's look at the bell curve across the population. Okay. If you're at the far end of that curve where you don't focus very well, medications help you. If you're in the middle of the curve, most of us, medicine's tiny benefit. They keep you up, but they're not helping you learning. If you're at the end of the curve where you're already overfocused, the stimulants make you worse. Yeah. They get you over So. They're not the panacea for learning. They're not the smart pills they were cracked up to be. That's number one. Number two, why aren't stimulants in the water supply? Because they're addictive. Kids with ADHD, well-monitored, tend to get, they don't get a high. They get, in fact, a little, little depressed. They get a little more focused on what they're doing. But people without ADHD, you pop a stimulant, you get a little buzz, a little euphoria. Yeah, you yeah. haven't
0: got number one, by the way. The, the fact that
1: they the don't work is, is good enough not to put them in the right. water
0: supply <laughs> even before that's you take right. ethical considerations.
1: But then well, the addiction. Now the addiction. So, so the question is, how many people, kids and adolescents treated for ADHD and monitored well by their doctor for medicines, become addicted? You look at the studies. There's very few reports of this. It seems vanishingly small. Probably one in a thousand. But what about the recent data on normally developing people, college students, et cetera, who take stimulants, 10 to 15% chance of getting addicted. And the emergency department, ER visits related to stimulants, tripled in the last four years. So there's a lot of these stimulants. The prescription rates are going up legitimately for people with ADHD. Kids will take them because their parents make them. Adolescents hate to take these medications for ADHD. They don't feel spontaneous. It makes them feel stigmatized. But they can sell them. They can sell them. Five bucks a tab for Adderall is a pretty good going rate these days, or quote, being borrowed by roommates or, or friends down the hall. I am not convinced that, and the, the big topic here is called neuro enhancement. And there's Sir Lancet, the British Medical Journal, did a special section on this a few years ago. Some scientists say they do better on stimulants because they can focus better. Ah, scientists, come on. We've got to discount them from the study right but, but it's a big issue because, well, what about steroids in Major League Baseball? Well, that was okay for a while until they were outlawed. Should you get a performance edge from a pill, right? Hmm. So, in fact, it's interesting in Major League Baseball, a bit of a tangent, but I think it's an interesting one. In Major League Football, Hockey, Baseball, if you take a stimulant, you're banned because it's a performance enhancer. Speeds your reaction time, does all the things the stimulant mm. does. Unless you're not afraid of stigma and you say, I've got ADHD, and a doctor is prescribing this for me. Right. The rates of stimulant use under these medical waivers in the NFL, the National Football League, are I think 5% or so. I'd have to look about the rate of ADHD in the general population, much higher in Major League Baseball. Yeah. Now, well, baseball's an it. it. depends on what you feel about baseball. One interpretation is oh, long time goes you're in right field, right? <laughs> inning after inning, and then the crack of the bat. And you if you're not there, you've got to have a And so, to me, it's interesting that either baseball attracts people with ADHD, which is a little far fetched, mm-hmm. or that you would get more exemptions for this because the edge you know, is that curveball going to go by me, right. or is that ball, a line drive, going to go over my head? Stimulants may give it, you an advantage. It, it is potentially performance-enhancing, yes, legitimately, really
0: because is. of the nature of the game.
1: Because of the nature of the game, and again, what I was saying a minute ago was, it's not performance-enhancing to really teach you new material, but for a baseball player to be right. alert. Right, he doesn't have to learn new material. He just That's has right. to be able to focus. At the you right got to know changing wind velocity, and it's ball two, strike one, and the pitcher's going to the outside corner. That ball's coming my way. Right. So there may be an argument to put
0: put these medications in the, in the water supply of professional baseball
1: players. Well, I, I, I didn't say that. <laughs> no, but I didn't I, say
0: you said that. <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I'll take your word for At least it. there's a logical argument for it. That's uh, right. But there's certainly not an ethical argument or a moral argument right. for it. Let's go back a little bit to, to the economics of, right. Uh, right. Uh, of ADHD. Um, you wrote this book, you co-wrote this book with a health economist, mm-hmm. as you said. And a lot of attention was paid to how much programs will cost That's and right. where's the financial incentive or the financial disincentive or, or, or what have you. Um, my understanding uh, of the, the overall lay of the land and, and in terms of your joint recommendations is yes, it will cost more to be able to have better diagnosis, better treatment, better follow-up, more sophisticated awareness of what's actually happening amongst health professionals, right. among teachers, amongst parents, and all the rest of that. These things do not come for free. But in the long term, if you disregard the the public health, right. ethical, moral reasons, which of course should be first and foremost in our minds, but even if you were just, for the yep. sake of an experiment, to disregard those, and yep. just look at the long-term economic consequences, you are wagering that the long-term economic consequences would justify this additional influx yep. of money because of the, boom to, the, the boost to productivity, the, the, the boost to the, the health and welfare and economic productivity of the, of the country.
1: And the reduction in accident rates. Yeah. Kids, preschoolers, it's hard to diagnose ADHD well in a preschooler. Some kids have it. Young kids with ADHD symptoms, high rates of them swallow poisons and get hit by cars and fall from high places. People 16 and above with ADHD have five times the rate of motor vehicle accidents, DUIs, right. fate, fatalities. The cost last year estimated... It's called the indirect costs, not of treating kids with ADHD, but the costs of poorly treated ADHD, special education, substance abuse treatment, $100 billion. And the cost to adult ADHD, mainly poor job productivity, getting bounced out of jobs, underemployment, close to $200 billion. Hmm. Adding several billion dollars of costs so that cl- pediatricians or general practitioners, who are the majority of diagnosticians for kids and adults, know about ADHD and going to take more time for a thorough assessment, are trained in how to monitor medications. If you could cut even a fraction of those big economic long-term costs, it's win-win. Yeah.
0: Let me you, you you mentioned a couple of other countries in passing, mm-hmm. but for the most part our discussion has revolved around American policy. Yeah. Uh, maybe at the state level, at the federal level, the the from a scientific perspective, the wonderful opportunities that were given you by, by these, uh, these changes in, in legislation over, uh, over a long period of time, so that you could do, some, to some extent, retrograde longitudinal studies based upon what was actually right. imposed, uh, uh, and then match that up with the, the known rates. Um, but you've also done quite a bit of work uh, yourself and with your colleagues, looking at how ADHD is handled around the world in, That's right. in, in, in other countries. And your assessment uh, would be what, in terms of where the places are that have their act together, that are doing things well, where the places are that, that
1: perhaps are a little bit further behind and, right. and, and need more uh, effort paid to this? Well, the first question is, Is ADHD really exist around the world? Is this just an American phenomenon? And the answer is a resounding, it exists around the world where? In countries with compulsory education. Completely subsistence countries have bigger fish to fry than ADHD. Sure. But once you start to require education, and what's remarkable is a 2007 review of the world's literature, it's been replicated recently, suggests that even though there's slight differences in terms of which scale does this country use or which measure does that country use, it's about 5% of kids around the world with compulsory education. Remarkably similar. Hmm. It's the U.S. that's the outlier with its 10, 11% these days. So it makes you think that there is something biological about five or so percent of kids who just don't fit very well in our current educational system. So then the next part of your question is, who's doing a good job and who isn't? And it's a complicated story because of history and politics and economics. France has has been uh, on blog posts and articles. There's no ADHD in France. Well they must be, let's look at their schooling and France has adhered to a very psychoanalytic model sure. child of psychology as well. psychiatry, yeah. and they think it's all sort of early bonding problems, and yeah. uh, uh, current French practitioners and scientists are, are thinking that that's been pretty misguided. Brazil, we did an international workshop up here in Berkeley four years ago to try to get a sense of some high-rate countries and low-rate countries. Brazil has traditionally, for the last couple of decades, had low rates of diagnosis and medication treatment. For many years, there was... Pol- politically repressive regimes in place. There was forced hospitalization and medicine. The public has understandably reacted against it. Now ADHD can get diagnosed if you're in an urban area, high-income health insurance, and it's only starting to catch on. Canada in many ways has the most progressive system where diagnosis is taken very seriously. If there's somebody in the remote north of Canada, there can be teleconferences or actually experts flown in to help with the diagnosis. Psychosocial, the behavioral treatments for parents and teachers are taken as seriously as medications. Still, however, in Canada and in many other countries, whereas if you've got autism, you can get special services at school ADHD alone does not automatically generate the special services. It's still a thought that, well, it's just kids not trying hard. It's not really deserving of this. So we found in a paper that Scheffler and I did, he was the lead author a few years ago, that if you plot about 100 countries on Earth, the economic well-being of the country, you can sort of plot a line, is pretty correlated with, how much ADHD is diagnosed and how much medication is given. Sort of makes sense. Performance pressures, economics. But there's a couple of countries like the US that are way above the predicted line and other countries like France that are way below. So it's not just economics, it's culture and values and how professionals are trained.
0: One of the most intriguing aspects of your thesis of the interplay between public policy and this particular condition, how it's diagnosed, how often it's diagnosed, how it's medicated, how often it's medicated in terms of um, uh, standards that educators, teachers, maybe bureaucrats Mm -hmm. have towards um, incentives for better performance, um, I think brings this whole question of how we measure our educational system. Using ADHD as a springboard to look at the educational process as a whole. You've mentioned several times um, that this condition, and somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but only somewhat, has arisen because of compulsory education. Before we had such such systems in place in Western societies, we didn't have this condition, or at least it wasn't clear that this condition was manifested in this particular way. Um, But of course, we all agree that education is a necessary thing, it's a good thing, it's a wonderful thing. Um, you can certainly look at uh, the motivations behind No Child Left Behind and say, we want to measure performance. Sure. We want to reward people who are doing a good job. We want to punish people who are doing a bad job or at least encourage them to, right. to do a better job. Uh, standards are important. So how, how do we marry these things? How do we find a way to objectively quantify or at least assess what's working and what's not working and yeah. at the same time, leave a sufficient amount of latitude so that people can be motivated, they can learn at their own pace, they can, they can actually flower as, as people without having to put them in this large sausage grinder.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is where, uh, if I could get another PhD in education, and <laughs> education reform would be a good thing. Uh, so I'm gonna start from the opposite extreme. Some people would contend that if we just tailored our educational system and really took into account people's different learning styles and strategies, ADHD wouldn't exist. Well, maybe if we could afford one-on-one tutoring 24-7 for every kid on Earth, it would be hard to find attention elapses. But we sure. still would, because what do we know? Kids with ADHD tend to gravitate towards video games. Video games are the world's best supposed treatment for ADHD, hmm. because kids with ADHD focus on them for hours at a time. Why? immediate reward, colorful stimuli. The level is geared to just what your level of performance is. Kids with ADHD do worse on video game performance than the normal population. They look like they're paying attention, but they're not. Hmm. So my guess is that all of the educational reform in the world is not going to eliminate these individual differences in response inhibition, sustained attention, motivation, etc. That said, could we do a better job, well, We're not quite as factory-like as we were 150 years ago with British and American educational systems. But could we do a better job of different learning styles and more active learning and computer-based learning? I mean, the big debate these days about MOOCs and online massive courses, and is this going to solve the ADHD problem because you can individually time and tailor your education? I think it's not a panacea, A. But B, I think we could do a much better job of finding ways of motivating some kids who don't pay attention very well, as well as those who do. We know that mm-hmm. kids who have dyslexia, reading disability, can really benefit from structured educational support. That's, that's another condition that didn't exist until we had compulsory education, because we didn't really care it's only a few right. kids learn to read anyway. Right. So if I knew more, I would say a lot more about the kinds of educational reforms needed. I mean, there's a lot of talk about are some kids kinesthetic learners, are some kids yeah. auditory learners, some visual, or do all kids really learn the same? And I think there are individual differences. What we need to find is in economically challenging times, in times where achievement performance pressures are mounting, how to build in intrinsic motivation through incentivizing educators. Yeah. Preschool teachers still get paid abysmally low. Regular teachers in grade school get paid in the public schools lower than they should be for the work they do. I think we need to really look at state-by-state funding of general education. Forget ADHD and special education for now. Right. How are we going to incentivize, if we want to put our money where our mouth is and we really care about the next generations, we don't fund public education in the ways that it's, it deserves. So that would be my bottom line answer.
0: Just a couple more questions. The book, ADHD Explosion, the reactions to that have been what in your mind? Did did people get the whole idea? Did they misconstrue some things? Did they take things out of context by and large? Has it had the effect that you were looking for?
1: Well, of course, what we've done in our reader profile is give them an attention deficit disorder battery first to see how attentive (laughs) they are to the No, if only we had much of the reaction to the book. And we've had an op-ed in the New York Times, we've been written up in the Wall Street Journal, we've been written up in the LA Times, Salon.com. There's a lot of interest, mainly about the educational policy issues we talked about. Are test scores horrible? Are they great? And like a lot of the media, it's polarized. Sure. And it's yes or no. It's good or bad. It's wonderful or terrible. Some of the less newsworthy but more considered read-throughs I've received in email and calls from people are you took this condition seriously. It's not black and white. It's not all or none. There is some subjectivity in the diagnosis, but that means it still can exist and does exist. We don't have a brain based diagnostic measure yet, but we may someday. Of course, rates are going to rise and fall as related to educational policy. That doesn't mean biology is not important. And the biological uh, perspective doesn't mean that educational policies aren't important either. The, the readers that I appreciate most got the message of the complexity and the importance and that this isn't one of these like, dislike, thumbs up, thumbs down, you gotta think about these issues. Have you heard anything from anyone at the New York Times? Well, in fact, Alan Schwartz, who's a right. reporter, uh, has interviewed me as background for a couple of his stories, quoted me and I got my picture in the Times in late December a little bit about the book, but more on the interpretation of this MTA study and how we really need to, if we're going to teach kids skills, we've got to look at more than medications. And The hope is that enough reporters, as well as opinion leaders, will take the messages of the book seriously enough to say that we can't really afford to say, it's all biology, or it's all made up. We can't afford to take the Scientologist's perspective that all mental illnesses bunk, and that we can't, uh, all psychiatric medications have to be uh, illegalized. These are complicated issues. Performance enhancement, whether it's through medication or through being able to afford an SAT tutor. Medications to control behavior, those are fighting words, especially when it's kids. But then if you've grown up in a family like I have with serious mental illness, my father's lifelong misdiagnosed bipolar disorder. Finally, after college, am I helping him to get a correct diagnosis and get on lithium? It was a lifesaver for a period of time. We have to be able to think that it's not just biological and it's not just sociocultural. It's a complex amalgamation of the two, which makes it fascinating, but less easy to make a banner headline about.
0: Yeah. Last question. You talk about... Social stigma mm-hmm. of mental illness you just mentioned your father and the the other book that you had written, yeah. one of the other books that you had written um, are you optimistic that society is slowly by hook or by crook starting to develop more understanding, more tolerance, yeah. more appreciation and, uh, and compassion uh, for for sufferers of mental illness across the board? Are you seeing things moving in the right direction there? At least within an American context, let's just limit yeah, let's it to Yeah, let's talk that.
1: about it in the United States. Well, the first part of my answer is pessimistic. Sociologists have done surveys of people's attitudes, general public's attitudes toward mental illness and social distance. Would you ride on a bus with a person like this? Would you let your daughter marry a person like this? For 50, 60 years, very similar. So, we've got one of these rare occasions where we can look across time. The American public today knows vastly more knowledge wise about mental illness than in the 40s and 50s. I mean, there just wasn't, there were no psychology courses in high school back then. Not as many people went to college. There was a lot of mystification. So, that's good news. But the bad news is that social distance, the American public's willingness to interact with people with mental illness, has either stayed flat or gotten worse at the same time that the knowledge has gotten better. Well, there's many reasons. Where did a lot of people with serious mental illness used to be? 1955 was our peak year in America. locked away in mental hospitals. And now where are they? In jails or on the streets and homeless. And so there's a sort of influx of very visible mental illness that leads to very bad stereotypes. It's not just knowledge, it's attitude, it's belief and empathy. Personal contact is gonna go a lot longer than a course on the symptoms of mental illness. In fact, intriguingly, there's some middle school, cur- you know, build into your health curriculum, a unit of a mental illness. Eighth graders learn a lot more about it and they're more afraid of it. They say, I didn't know people with schizophrenia thought, Crazy thoughts and had heard voices.
0: Oh, really? So it's counterproductive. It can
1: I'm, be counterproductive unless you get people who've experienced schizophrenia, for example, to come in and talk to them. Talk and right. say that I'm just like you and right. got my problems. Humanization is the way to go. And so the more optimistic part of all this is just as with gay marriage, where there's a big age divide, younger people in general in the United States are much more in favor than people above a certain age. For mental illness, we don't have the same national data as we do on gay marriage, but a lot of younger people are more open and willing, and the hope is that they're going to grow into the sort of establishment who are more willing to accept behavioral and emotional differences. Now, (laughs) final point on this. I know how I could eliminate racial prejudice. Just make everybody's skin color the same as mine, right? Obviously. There's, you have to tolerate differences. With mental illness, though, it's an illness. is trickier. One of the best anti-stigma programs for people with mental illness is for them to get treatment and feel better about themselves and have more productive lives. And that helps public attitudes. But in the same way, you can't treat somebody for racial difference. Right. But still, people who get well-treated for serious mental illness are going to be different. We have to tolerate behavioral diversity, too. So it's incumbent on both the healthcare system and people and families to get treatment and reimburse it, but also for us to decide as a society, what are the limits of behavioral diversity that we want to tolerate, too? So it makes it fascinating. I'm alternately optimistic and pessimistic. Like many social causes, this isn't going to go away with the next campaign in the next two or three years. This is a lifelong battle.
0: Great. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Good. Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks so David. much. Really it's good. been terrific. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the e-book and paperback Conversations About Psychology, Volume 1, along with separate discussions with Chris Frith, Diana Deutsch, Stephen Kostlin, and Jonathan Schooler. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to IdeasRoadshow.com. For well, those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune in to another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.